Hey y'all, welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathien and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. This week, I am very excited to be sitting down with Jacqueline Levy. Jacqueline is the director of U.S. policy at AMR Action Fund, which is the world's largest public-private partnership investing in the development of new antimicrobial therapeutics. Prior to working at AMR Action Fund, Jacqueline was a 2020 Atlantic Council Millennium Fellow and director of public policy at the Infectious Diseases Society of America. She is a seasoned communicator and strategist with over a decade of experience in federal and global policy and advocacy work. Jacqueline, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about everything we're going to chat about. It's going to be a good one. I'm particularly excited about this conversation because AMR Action Fund is one of these really unusual sort of cutting edge, non-traditional ways that we tackle a major global challenge. And so this is sort of why I started this podcast. I had no idea organizations like this existed. This is, I know, very new. And so excited to be able to just dig into it and learn about how you made your way over there. So a common experience that I have seen at Second Day is, you know, I want to work in healthcare, but I don't want to be a doctor, which seems to be a theme in your own kind of early career. You were an EMT in high school. You studied dramatic literature and then you got a master's degree that was sort of at the intersection of microbiology, biosecurity, and defense. So you took quite a nonlinear journey into this world, but I sort of see that theme of being passionate about healthcare without wanting to be a doctor. So would you say that's an accurate kind of description of where your head was at? And what generally drew you to the world of science and policy? Yeah. So, well, when you list it all out like that, it it sure sounds like a lot. Definitely circuitous. Definitely is the correct characterization that I was drawn to. Kind of elements of emergency medicine, but not necessarily with the acumen for medical school itself. I've always had a lot of varied interests. I've always liked really exciting things, kind of an adrenaline junkie. And maybe kind of thinking back, there's sort of been a running theme of disaster preparedness. You could argue also it does apply to new play development if you've ever done it. And so having a foot in so many different worlds kind of started to highlight similarities over time in places you might not expect them, kind of like these very interesting Venn diagrams of ideas. Charles Dewing, he's a New York Times author. He wrote this book called Smarter, Faster, Better. And there's a section about innovation. And he talks about idea brokers and sort of this idea of these people who combine elements from different industries and crafts to to create these sort of new ideas. And so for me, sort of this idea of living at the nexus between different spaces is probably what propelled a lot of my path. And then living in D.C. is where I came for college and where I've been since now 2004. And it seems like nearly everybody's doing something related to policy or business or science. And so it was noticeable really early on that a lot of the time people had very similar goals or priorities, but were kind of siloed within their professional lane. And, you know, each of them had their own language and processes and, and framework. And so there was a gap in terms of connection and collaboration. And sort of when you're talking about those issues with science and policymakers, who are folks that need to work together on very complex issues. It's a niche that I found myself really drawn to. It touches on cutting edge science and biosecurity and emerging infectious diseases, which are all things where you're going to get a lot of policy questions and you also are going to need education and collaboration. And so the program that I did my master's at in Georgetown really focused on this space. And so from there, the rest was kind of history. 
I love that. And something that struck me as you were talking is as a lay person who works in neither policy nor science, my assumption is a lot of the challenges are similar in terms of communicating to somebody like me why the work matters, right? So trying to explain to someone who doesn't work in policy why they should care about policy or politics or someone who is not a scientist, why you should care about infectious diseases or vaccines or all of these things. Do you find that there are similar communication challenges in both worlds? What can we learn from each other in that? Yeah, absolutely. Being able to distill something to the right audience at the right time is an art and definitely a science that we're seeing more and more. And I think, you know, oftentimes knowing who you're talking to is half the battle, but being right does not necessarily mean that you're going to advance or win. And I think that's a lesson in policy that became apparent early on and is very important. And so when you talk about policymaking, people want to see evidence-based ideas. If you want to allocate money for something, they need to figure out the cost for it and they want to know what's the evidence and what's the data-driven reason behind implementation. That said, you know, we can talk about numbers all day long and I'm sure in the next little while we will, but that's not really what moves the needle as far as communication to different types of audiences most of the time. There's a quote often misattributed to Stalin, I think, that I'm going to butcher that's something along the lines of one death is a tragedy and a million are a statistic. Putting a face on an issue is incredibly important to being able to not only communicate it to different groups, but it also being able to understand the broader impacts, in this case, sort of the broader public health and policy impacts of those types of decision making. Yeah. And we'll get into this a little bit more specifically with the elephant in the room that is COVID. But before we get into that, you specifically found yourself interested in infectious diseases and you started at IDSA in 2016, which in your words is sort of the professional society for all things infectious disease. So can you, again, as a layperson, sort of explain what does infectious diseases encompass and why is it such an important part of public health? And what did you specifically do at ISDA? Yes. And I will do my best to wade through the alphabet soup of policy acronyms and try and spell it. Just stop me if I head into abbreviations. So IDSA is the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which, as you said, is the professional society for all things infectious disease or ID. That was always so interesting to me. I've already mentioned, you know, the biosecurity element of it, you know, the biological chemical weapons convention kind of policy aspect, and then the emerging infectious disease pandemic preparedness aspect. Those were really what drew me into the space. And then on a practical sort of data to day level in the job, you know, infectious disease impacts every area of medicine for the most part, the food we eat, the technologies we advance. And like you said, we'll mention it probably later, but we've certainly seen with COVID how it can impact daily life far beyond the immediate sphere of public health. So my role there at IDSA was as director of public policy. And so given how broad the field is, it really covered as far as the public policy agenda, everything from research to diagnostics to public health policy. And all of this was largely at the federal level. So we're talking about liaising with Congress, Health and Human Services. These are acronyms most folks now know these days, CDC, NIH, and then the FDA and a couple of other folks, um, you know, the, the administration, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the issues at hand were also really sort of mile-wide inch deep. We talked about clinical trial design and research training and molecular diagnostics, reimbursement and vaccines, and all under the lens of sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, how does this bring us to antimicrobial resistance? or AMR, 
Well, IDSA is a member organization, right? It's all of the infectious disease doctors and educators and researchers and public health folks. And so they did a survey and said, of all of these you know, myriad issues, what's the most important to you? And overwhelmingly, antimicrobial resistance was the thing that worried infectious disease professionals the most, bar none. And so the idea here, just in brief, being that, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but nearly the whole of modern medicine depends on effective antibiotics. And so we hear a lot about antibiotic resistance in the news from time to time, you know, take your whole prescription if you've been prescribed it, don't misuse them, et cetera. But it can't be overstated how much of a growing threat this sort of is to patient care. And not only does it impact nearly every area of medicine, right, cancer, diabetes, surgery, autoimmune disease, transplants, but there's an issue now where nobody is developing them. And, you know, we can get more into that, but just basically it is to say that there's really nothing in the pipeline that's coming down. There hasn't been a new class developed in 30 years, and there is increasingly less incentive to catalyze innovation where it's very much needed. And so that sort of antimicrobial resistance umbrella is what is the lens through which we pursued a lot of the policy priorities at IDSA. And so that, you know, made sense to me as far as sort of moving over to the AMR Action Fund, which focuses almost exclusively on antimicrobial resistance, just because this is such a key priority issue to so many people in the space. That's really helpful. And I kind of want to break this into two pieces. So the first piece is what you touched on earlier, which is very much how we have seen the impacts of something like COVID on public health and on such a dramatic global scale. And so starting there, what did you observe about how science and infectious disease policy and infrastructure exists right now? What gets you really excited? What got you really frustrated? And I asked this question through the lens of like, where do you see opportunity for young people who want to come into this space based on on what you observed with COVID and how things might have changed in your world because of COVID. Yeah, there was a lot of proof of concept that we saw in a lot of ways. And so it was a bit of a game changer as far as the, the biological research enterprise and a number of other things. I, in many ways, it showed what type of innovation we're collectively capable of when different sectors are able to work together and pool their resources. You know, we saw that in the advent of adaptive clinical trials over in the UK. They were doing what was called the recovery trial and was able to bring things through multiple phases and types of patient groups. We saw novel vaccines warp speed in under a hundred days, which was previously unheard of. And so to see that kind of payoff um, really validated a lot of the sort of, to that point, more theoretical type arguments saying these are the types of things that are possible. Well, now we know they are. But that said, a lot of groundwork was needed to be able to launch from that point at that point. You know, for example, Moderna had an investment from DARPA, federal scientific investment almost a decade ago in mRNA vaccine platforms. That was what enabled a lot of our ability to pivot and focus on a platform for a SARS coronavirus vaccine when it was most needed. I'd say to kind of maybe a weird silver lining, if you will, that I would have lost a bet on for sure is the increased public awareness that we have now about things like molecular diagnostics. Like if you had told me that somebody would know what a PCR is outside of very small group of folks, I would have been incredibly surprised. And so I think when we're talking about education and these sorts of you know distillation of complex topics, we've got a little broader of a base to go from now. I think people understand the extent to which these diagnostics and these sorts of you know previously sort of maybe arcane things are very important in day-to-day life. 
life, even if they're not at the forefront. CDC put out a report just a couple of months ago showing incontrovertibly that COVID significantly worsened antimicrobial resistance in the United States because there are a lot of secondary infections, hospital-acquired infections from, you know, if you're there for COVID, they jumped about 15% in the first year of the pandemic. And so something like that reverses years of progress. And so showing the kinds of impacts that these things have sort of as a ripple effect within public policy has been incredibly, you know, both informative, a little bit scary, and also necessary to communicate. And then as far as opportunities for folks who are thinking about something like this, you know, we're entering this really interesting age. And this is why I'm interested in the space of like precision medicine and some computational biology, big science, big data. And with that comes the need for big money, right? And so what used to be an issue really between science and policymakers that sort of drew me to the space, it's sort of becoming a little more like 3D chess. Now it's expanded. Now there are new types of funders and funding mechanisms we need to talk about. And so that means a need for more education, a need for more different types of stakeholders, and then hopefully implementing new frameworks to facilitate these innovations that we need. The science is there. Often it's making the market fit. And so for me, that was the draw of sort of moving into the venture capital space as part of an effort to integrate this new element into a system that's sort of in transition. Yeah. And before we get into that, which I'm very excited to talk through the economics of this whole thing, I'm also curious if, you know, we started this conversation with discussing the fact that a lot of the challenges in this work is the storytelling and getting people to understand why it's important, putting a face to it, making it feel relevant to folk, even if it is very clearly relevant, maybe people don't feel like it is. And then COVID, of course, made all of this very relevant to all of us. I'm curious if you've seen a difference in how we talk about science and policy now. You mentioned that it's wild that people know what PCR tests are now, but have you seen that it actually is making a difference in how we are talking, like the public discourse around public health? Is that translating into to more resources being shifted there. What what is your observation of how COVID has sort of changed in the mainstream for your world? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that certainly the prevalence of these discussions has increased. I'm, you know, I'm not sure that Dr. Fauci was as naturally known as he now is a couple of years ago, for example. We see Dr. Ja, Shish Ja, briefing all the time, really being out there. And I think the space given to public health discussion has certainly widened, but I'm not sure that, I'm not sure how widely it is translating beyond a certain audience. And I, and I also am not sure that to your question about resources that they have been allocated in a sustainable manner that's necessary to really mitigate a lot of these issues. And a lot of that is because a lot of this relies on federal funding for the most part. And the way these types of appropriations are allocated are, are year to year. And so you'll get a, you know, a collective funding of something like COVID in the time of this public health emergency. But then you hit a fiscal cliff a couple of years later when these programs are not renewed and all of a sudden all of this great, you know, sequencing infrastructure that the CDC has built isn't able to be funded anymore. And so I, you know, I think connecting the dots between why is this so important and how do we build and maintain the infrastructure necessary to engage with it are still dots that need to continuously be connected as far as advocating for these issues and maintaining that drumbeat. 
Yeah, I mean, we famously have very short attention spans. So I'm not surprised to hear that it isn't heavily discussed constantly, that things can kind of suddenly get very deprioritized. And one of the things that has obviously come up a lot in this conversation is just the economics around how this works. So you use the example of the vaccine. And I think there were a lot of misconceptions out there that a lot of things were jumped over and people kind of skidded past certain requirements. And we just sort of put it together haphazardly, which obviously is not the case. But because of the amount of resources that were out there and streamlining the process, it was possible. But to your point, the economic of infectious disease does not invite a lot of innovation and resources to come in. So can you explain a little bit about what you mean with that and how, to your point, AMR Action Fund is taking this on? You know, as I mentioned, the science often is there. It's the market that's not. And so with antibiotics, you know, we already touched on this a little bit in brief, but I mean, I remember growing up and seeing sort of banners outside the grocery store saying free antibiotic. And if they weren't free, maybe they were a couple of bucks. And so, you know, historically, these are medications that while they are incredibly critical, they are not money makers in the sense of a return on investment. They always sell for very low dollar figure. And we talked a little bit about burgeoning resistance. You also don't want to overuse them, right? The perfect antibiotic is one that's sort of sitting on the shelf, but available as you need it. You know, when it costs a billion dollars to develop and maintain a new antibiotic, and you're not getting any of that money back, it's a really tough prospect to say, well, we need to go and continue to invest billions of dollars in this. People don't want to spend their money that way, which is why oftentimes the federal government is who's stimulating a lot of this investment. And so the AMR Action Fund was formed in 2020, and it was really kind of the brainchild of the few big pharma companies left in the space, because again, the ROI was not there. A couple of biotech, the Wellcome Trust, some nonprofit and foundation and VC partners all committing a billion dollars collectively to form this fund that would invest in promising antimicrobial R&D for the most critically needed life-saving drugs in an attempt to get two to four across the finish line by the end of the decade. And the idea here is that we need to change the policy landscape this and the way that these drugs are valued because otherwise you're putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Investing in these technologies now is something we can do to sort of bridge the gap as this work continues to progress. But really... The idea in the U.S. is that volume makes money over value. And so if you don't want to sell antibiotics at a high volume and you're only selling them for a couple of dollars, the value is not there in the traditional sense. And so really, you know, most of the pharmaceutical industry has abandoned antimicrobial R&D. You have these smaller biotechnology companies now, like smart folks with good ideas sort of spin this off and hope that they can get it to a scalable, commercialized place. But I mentioned earlier that there's been no new class of antibiotics approved in the last 30 years. Last month was the not-so-happy anniversary of that. In the last decade, only 15 new antimicrobials, period, were approved. And then back to the economics, one in three companies of those 15 have since either gone bankrupt or sold off their antibiotics programs, even though their asset was approved. Again, just because the ROI of, of sort of keeping the lights on and, and being able to get everything to market, you know, access for patients just wasn't there. And so that was the impetus behind the AMR Action Fund and sort of the policy needs and why we have a policy team in this VC fund is really trying to change that landscape and building the plane as we're flying it to an extent. 
Yeah. So let's talk about this VC model, which is so interesting. I talk to VCs like just in my personal and professional life a lot. And the theme I hear a lot from them is we're looking for our next unicorn. You know, we're thinking about the return on investment. That's the thing that drives everything that we do, like the very straightforward sort of ways that they are incentivized. So I'm curious, you've been talking a lot about how the economics just don't make sense to get a big return. So how is AMR Action Fund taking this VC model and making it work for this really unusual base? And how have y'all had to redefine VC elements moment? It's been quite a ride and a lot of fun and a lot of work. So the AMR Action Fund is structured like a traditional equity fund. But given sort of the current pipeline and the policy landscape, we tend to have increasingly operated in more of an impact fashion. It's a really interesting dichotomy in terms of those narratives, because on the investment side, you want to make an attractive value proposition. This is an area full of potential. But on the policy side, it's a lot more doom and gloom, right? The pipeline is drying up. We need transformative changes now, immediately. And so balancing that is a challenge and also an opportunity. And so I think the fund is definitely groundbreaking in terms of you know the capital it's amassed, amassed specifically for the purpose of investing in the development of these critically needed antibiotics. And it's also notable that big pharma and smaller biotechs and nonprofits all have skin in the game. And so the fund is playing a sort of a unique role by serving as a bridge to continued innovation. Well, on the policy side, folks are hopefully continuing to work to enact the market reforms to support investment in the pipeline. And so the role we play is kind of talking to policymakers and, and different government stakeholders about you know, different policy solutions that will help incentivize R&D and subsequently patient access for these types of medications. That makes sense. And is there a particular project or initiative that you are really excited about that you get up and work on every day or something you've sort of accomplished in your time there that you are really pumped about and you'd like to share? There's so much going on, which is a good thing, but also sort of getting out of our own echo chamber is, is a perpetual goal. And so I will be just one year in, in a couple of weeks. And so in that amount of time, I think we've really sort of built the fun a long way from the ground up. One thing that's been really great is is sort of beginning to establish ourselves as a thought leader in this space. We are not able to lobby in a traditional government relations sense. And as somebody who's not a lobbyist, that's fine with me. But what's been useful about that is being able to really present ourselves as resources. You know, we're not going to ask you to sign on to a bill or to, you know, sponsor such and such legislation. We just want to explain to you why this is so important and help educate on, you know, the aspects of the finances that are really crucial here as far as the policymaking concerns considerations go. And so I was able to represent the fund at a UK global expert meeting earlier this fall, participated in a National Academies workshop on developing rapid diagnostics to address AMR and on a working group for that, that's going to put out a perspective piece on why this issue is so important. And then we're also working in consortium to analyze and publish claims data that will break down geographic and socioeconomic impacts of AMR across the US. And so that's one of those things when you know somebody wants to know, where's the evidence behind this proposal? Well, here's the claims data and how it breaks down and who it's affecting and why this is so important on a personal level. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention after spending about a decade trying to answer, how do you bridge dramatic literature with microbiology? The fund also has invested in a show, a, a musical called The Mold That Changed the World that had its US premiere in Washington, DC last month after coming up through Edinburgh Fringe on the other side 
side of the pond. And the idea here is that this is a musical that tells the story of Alexander Fleming and the discovery of penicillin and why antimicrobial resistance is such an important issue. It uses local public health and infectious disease experts in the city that it goes to. Talk about getting outside the echo chamber, as well as bridging some seemingly very disparate fields. And so that to me is sort of the epitome of everything we're we're doing here in, in a lot of ways and has definitely been a lot of fun to work on alongside of these sometimes more thorny, complex policy issues. I mean, move over Hamilton. I think we just found the next educational musical. I love that. I think that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited is people who are thinking outside of the box and how we share stories, right? And you sort of touched on this a little bit, but you studied dramatic literature in college and now you do something seemingly very different. You've had quite an interesting, as you said, nonlinear path. I wonder if you can shed a little bit of light on how you've made it here or some of the things that you would want people to understand about how you made it to this place in your career. I think it's easy to look back and look at your LinkedIn and see, oh, all the pieces fit together. It makes sense. But when you're deep in it, you are sort of making it up as you go. And I'm curious if you can kind of reflect a little bit on what it's been like to make it to this particular point in your journey, knowing you have many, many exciting things ahead of you as well. Yeah, making it up as you go is definitely a, a common theme. And I think a narrative only really exists if you can tell it from back to front, like you say. And my personal path was really driven as much by necessity as it was by passion in a lot of ways. I had put myself through grad school. I had student loans from undergrad. And so I needed to pay those off. I needed to be able to stay living in DC. You know, hustle culture is certainly pervasive these days. I think a lot of people know what it's like to have to work multiple jobs. And that's certainly not a unique situation, but it gave me a fairly unique path because I had to work multiple jobs while trying to build a career. And these would be things like bartending or like tutoring, things that maybe I wouldn't have necessarily planned to have done or chosen to have done in a perfect world. But it's really interesting how they ended up intersecting with my ultimate path. I think, you know, being open to new experiences and people can really drive your next step sometimes in ways that you couldn't necessarily predict or plan. Just from being behind the bar, you know, you hear everything from everybody. And in Washington, D.C., that means those two congressmen over there are talking about who knows what. And I think, you know, just the glimpse that I got into how leadership works through different groups and at different levels has absolutely informed my experience going through the ranks of a career and seeing how things work behind closed doors and just sort of having that as an experience to fall back on and work from. I think the system is broken in a lot of ways. When I think of sort of how I could have spent that time, this past December when I joined the fund was the very first time I have only ever had one job since the time I've started working jobs. And that that includes through college as well. And also that's something that not everybody can do. And so when we talk about, you know, diversity and equity and access and inclusion and public health, that extends to this as well. So that's why I'm thrilled that Second Day exists and folks have the opportunity to really be able to pursue these kinds of passions while getting the sort of career counseling they need. Because I do think mentorship is one of those pivotal things that is so crucial that you should get wherever you can get it. Somebody wrote an essay once about non-consensual mentorship. If you find one, you take it. Maybe they'll agree to be your mentor or maybe not but you learn what you can. And I do think that was it was so true and resonates with me. Well, I honestly feel like that's a beautiful note to end on. I don't know if you have any final thoughts or things you'd like to share, but so appreciate everything you've already brought to this conversation. No, thank you so much. This was great. And I'm thrilled that you all are out there doing what you do. Um, and I hope folks are interested in this space and I'm always happy to be a resource. Thank you so much, Jacqueline.
The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. 